The following is a pre-recorded program and is not live. Thanks for listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. It's that time of year again. Dear Susan is here. Along with the excitement of sharing in the tradition of the hunt, there's an important safety measure that bears keeping in mind. Since its first detection in Wisconsin in 2001, chronic wasting disease has been spreading to more areas in the state, with 60 out of 72 counties within 10 miles of a positive CWD case in 2022, according to the DNR. Today on Perpetual Notion Machine, Heather Inzalaco from the Wisconsin Cooperative Wildlife Research Unit at UW-Madison tells us more about CWD and a new creepy crawly place where she found it lurking. Thank you, Heather, for joining us on PNM. Um, we'll just jump right in uh, with the, the main issue of concern, uh, which is what is CWD? Um, and yeah, can you just give us a little bit of that background on what that is? Sure. Um, yeah, CWD, or chronic wasting disease, is a prion disease that affects cervids or members of the cervidae um, family. Uh, it doesn't affect all species, but there are uh, a number of them that are affected. And um, these include white-tailed deer, moose, elk, um, caribou, mule deer. Um, and they, uh, you know, obviously they're they're wild animals. So um, CWDs, it's a prion disease, and prion diseases are... Um, they are fatal neurodegenerative diseases, and they don't have a cure. There are prion diseases of humans. Um, you, you might have heard of mad cow disease, for example, where it's a prion disease of humans, came from cattle. Um, and so CWD is kind of unique in the prion disease family, I guess we'll say, because it's the only known prion disease to affect free-ranging wildlife. And anytime there's an infectious disease in wildlife, uh, how the pathogen is moved around, um, how it goes from individual to individual, how it spreads, essentially becomes very complex. So the other ones are found in livestock primarily? or um, <laughs> the Prion diseases have a very interesting history actually and i won't go too much into the detail but um there's a prion disease of sheep and goats called scrapie and there's a lot of evidence that suggests that the prion disease of scrapie which essentially you know we've observed in sheep domestic sheep since the 1600s wow um we didn't know it was a prion disease then uh, we, uh, you know, people thought eventually, you know, thought that in the history of discovering what a prion disease was, um, prion diseases were previously known as slow viruses. They were thought to be some kind of a virus that progressed very slowly. Um, but it wasn't until like the 90s that um, Stanley Prusner, um won the Nobel Prize for identifying that it was actually a protein, prion protein causing, a misfolded prion protein causing the disease. There are a lot of um, 
there are, there are a few people out there that don't believe in that hypothesis, but um, the majority of prion biologists believe that uh, the protein is causing the disease. And so scrapie, we've known about for a long time, um, in sheep, we think was what caused uh, mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy in cattle. If you remember in the 1990s, there was a big outbreak of mad cow disease. And shortly after that, um, there was sort of an epidemic uh, where people began to get sick. Um, and essentially what that was, was mad cow disease was caused by scrapie. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is where it came from. And eventually, because of the processing um, of, uh, we'll just call it the food source for the cattle, uh, it was a processing change in their feed, and their feed contained a lot of animal uh, parts and pieces, and um, that's probably what led to the crossover of scrapie uh, from sheep to a different species, to cattle. And then it was the consumption of contaminated meat, um, contaminated ground beef, essentially, that caused people to get sick. Wow. So it became zoonotic. And then rather quickly. Um, so we've got scrapie, then we've got bovine spongiform encephalopathy or mad cow disease. Uh, and then we've got chronic wasting disease. There are some other prion diseases I won't get into, like there's a transmissible mink encephalopathy. Um, so there, you know, I'm not I'm not going to get in too much into the weeds about it, but um, yes, the CWD or chronic wasting disease um, is a prion disease, just like scrapie in some sense, and like mad cow disease. They affect different species, obviously. Um, and they have, they all have a long incubation period, um, but they have different, uh, I'll say pathological characteristics, um, like during the disease process. So they're a little bit different. They're not the same disease, but they are the same kind of disease, the prion diseases. So how does CWD and, and also other prion diseases, um, how do they cause the disease in the actual deer or human that has it hmm. yeah so essentially the animal would be exposed in some way presumably orally you know they would consume something that's contaminated um there's some evidence from scientific studies uh that suggests that inhalation may also be a route if they inhale enough material that's contaminated say there's contaminated dirt or dust and they inhale that uh, they potentially be, could become infected. Um, so the route is usually oral, oral, or um, nasal mucosa. And you, you ingest it. And um, the pathogenesis, or like how the, the pathogen goes through the body and what it does, isn't 100% um, known. Like how that works um, in deer, there are some variables that can affect uh, how there can, there are some variables. This is a very complex disease, so I'm trying to simplify things. There's some very 
there's some variables that can affect um, pathogenesis, essentially, like where the prions go in the animal's body, um, how much they accumulate in a certain area, for example. And that's sort of a, there's a host genetic component that kind of dictates that in a way um, where, you know, you might see a lot of accumulation um, in the peripheral parts of the body really early on versus very little accumulation in the peripheral parts of the body in some individuals that are genetically different from the usual um, susceptible individuals. They're all susceptible. It doesn't matter what their uh, what that genetic difference is. They all end up getting sick, but some of them, uh, there's sort of a delay, as it were. And so essentially you ingest some prions and they go through the digestive system. There's a lot of cellular information, information about that, the cellular mechanisms of uptake and how it gets through um, the digestive system and where it goes from there. I'm not going to get into those details, um, but essentially over the course in deer, um, over the course of about a year and a half to a two year period, um, the uh, prion protein, the misfolded prion protein, uh, utilizes what is called the normal cellular prion protein. That's something that all mammals express, utilizes that. Uh, because it's in the host. Um, this normal cellular prion protein is a good thing. Like we all need it. We, it, you know, it's it's important for all cell maintenance. And so when that aberrant um, prion protein, the misfolded form, um, essentially the infectious form enters the system, it causes this uh, conversion it forces the normal prion protein to misfold. And it does that throughout the host's um, peripheral uh, systems, through blood, uh, in, in the tissue, and in the skin. Um, and it eventually, the misfolding occurs in the brain. And that's essentially what, uh, towards the end stages of disease, will result in an animal becoming clinical and see signs of them having the disease. For about a year and a half, a year to a year and a half, they're, if they're infected, you may not necessarily know because they're sort of at this uh, subclinical stage. They're, they're still sick and they're still infectious, um, but they don't look sick and they don't act sick until the very late disease. So... Uh, essentially, the the misfolded prions they build up in the um, in the brain, and they aggregate. They like to hang out with each other. Misfolded prions like to stick to each other, and they form these plaques when they do that. And when they form the plaques, it essentially creates uh, destruction of the neurons. It destroys neuronal tissue, um, and so basically leaves holes or patches on the brain where there's no neuronal activity. And then see signs and symptoms like dissidents. They may be um, 
you know, they may have an extreme lack of balance and coordination. Um, they may seem listless, uh, little interest in grooming, self-grooming, or Allen grooming. Um, there's, it, it can affect different species of cervids differently. So, for example, in elk, you may see excessive drooling um, towards the later stages of disease. Um, but apparently not so much in white-tailed deer. Um, so, yeah, that's ultimately what happens. Yeah. That's pretty a terrible scary. way to die. Yeah. <laughs> so with uh, deer season coming up, um, you know, what, what are some ways that we have in place to prevent that from uh, carrying over to humans if we're, you know, hunting deer and, you know, consuming them and we, yeah how do we know if a if a deer is sick yeah so I'll, I'll preface what i'm going to say by the whether or not cwd is transmissible to humans is it's it, it the the species barrier seems to be quite high so it's we don't 100 know if that will change because prion diseases um they can adapt not in the same way that you would see a virus or a bacteria adapt. They're like they're interesting and weird pathogens because they're pro they're just proteins. But there is an adaptation process that we think that you know can occur. Um, and so, right now, there's not any evidence to to suggest that CWD um, has zoonotic potential. That's good. <laughs> um, but I like to preface that with saying that could change. Um, that that is something that the prion biology community is watching very closely. There's a lot of research being done um, trying to assess the uh, potential for CWD to cross species barriers, not just to humans, but to other wildlife. Um, and also domestic animals. And uh, so we have to keep that in mind. But I would say, you know, for hunters, it's always, always a good idea to, if you harvest a deer, to submit the samples for testing. And how, because, um, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in Wisconsin, there's a program where they have stations where you essentially, you don't even have to collect the samples yourself. If you've harvested a deer, all you have to do is basically deposit the head of the deer to the sampling station. And they're like locked, it's like a locked dumpster covered and locked. Um, and so bears can't get in there. And they have these stations set up in a certain places all over the state. Um, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, then um, I think on a weekly basis, sometimes bi-weekly, depending on where we're at in hunting season and whether or not it's gun season. Um, but they essentially, they'll, they'll bring those heads to a central location for processing, remove, um, there are some, there's lymphatic tissue in the neck. They're called retropharyngeal lymph nodes. Those get removed and those get submitted 
to a diagnostic laboratory for testing, a veterinary diagnostic laboratory here at Unilever Madison for testing. And the results are retrievable for the hunter. They can go online using their um, deer tag uh, barcode number. You can do a search and find out the results of your deer that you harvested. So I highly recommend that hunters do this um, to test to test the meat. Um, and I realize, you know, it's complicated or it's not ideal because once you harvest a deer, you got to get that thing processed. You can't just let it lay around unless it's already really, really cold out. But even still, you know, you're going to put it in the back of your truck and then wait to find out, wait a week to find out if it's CWD positive or not, you know, so they're likely already getting the deer process yeah. before they know the results or unless you're processing it yourself, you know, that would be, then you're lucky in your best case scenario, you're not out, you know, the cost of processing. Yeah. Okay. But you'll get the results in about a week and might be yeah. able to pick them in the freezer until then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you can make the choice. You know, we don't recommend that you eat meat from a deer that's CWD positive. Uh, I would not recommend that. Like I said, there's a lot we still don't know about uh, the zoonotic potential of CWD. Uh, right now, it appears that the species barrier for humans is quite high, but that could change. Mm -hmm. And it would be a disaster. <laughs> public health disaster uh it would be an epidemic like we saw with mad cow disease yeah in the 90s um so other than the well so you have some recent research um about other potential ways that deer might be passing this amongst themselves okay. um let's get into that um what is this other mode, other potential mode of transmission that you're looking into? Yeah. So, you know, um, wild animals in general, we don't see everything that they do. They probably do a lot of behaviors that maybe we never capture or we capture very rarely. Um, and so I was thinking about that a little bit uh, when I was thinking about um, white-tailed deer in particular and white-tailed deer in Wisconsin, and why do we have such high prevalence in southwest Wisconsin? Why do we have such high CWD prevalence? Mm. Um, and then how is CWD maintained? Like, how is the disease maintained in wild populations, um, in herds uh, of Wisconsin and, and elsewhere? Um, and I was thinking of all the ways that deer that have CWD are interacting with one another and they're interacting with their environment. Um, and when they have CWD, they're essentially shedding CWD prions the whole time they're sick, pretty much. But in, um, in their... They shed, yeah, they shed prions in their feces, from their feces. Um, it's also in their urine in their saliva. Well, yeah. So anything and that comes off of them. 
anything that comes off of them, essentially. Yeah, it's even in their antler velvet because it's highly polarized. Oh, yeah, so um, they're depositing, you know, smallish amounts of prions wherever they go, essentially. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking about too is, you know, there's other, there's other, uh, so there's biological parts of the environment and then there's like, um, non-biological parts of the environment, like soil and water and things like that. Um, and I was thinking about other biological aspects of their environment and the fact that, you know, prions are also in blood um, at higher higher amounts in blood than we see in um, feces, for example, and how that might be relevant also. Um, there might be some pieces of the puzzle that we're missing with the environmental aspects of transmission of chronic waste seat disease. And so those were the things that I was kind of you know, thinking about and mulling over. And um, I thought about ticks a lot. And because they take a large blood meal, um, I thought they might, there might be some relevance there because with white-tailed deer in particular, because there's this culmination of events with white-tailed deer and the chicks that might be on them. You know, white-tailed deer are very social with one another. They allogram each other, um, and they do that to remove. The purpose of allogrooming is to remove ectoparasites that you can't reach yourself. So if you've got ticks on your ears, on your head, and maybe on the back of your neck, um, you might get an, a, a friend or someone from your social group to help you with that. And they do willingly, you know, it's a trade-off. Um, there's some evidence from the literature that uh, when allogrooming is going on, that they don't just remove the ectoparasite, that they actually will eat it. That to me is concerning. <laughs> when we think about CWD in blood and how, uh, you know, a deer that's healthy could interact with a deer that's not healthy or has CWD and what that might mean for uh, possible transmission events of CWD. So that, those were things that I was thinking about um, when I started uh, looking, looking at ticks as a possible way for CWD, CWD to be um, transmitted from one deer to another. Um, what did you find? Yeah, so with this, uh, we, we did a study um, where we first did, we used what are called membrane feeding assays with ticks. Uh, these were pathogen-free ticks that were lab-raised. And um, essentially that the study was two parts. So there was the membrane feeding and then there was um, the other part, which was actually collecting ticks from deer, testing them to see what their uh, potential role is in CWD transmission. So the first part is membrane feeding, where we assess if ticks, black-legged ticks that are primarily 
the tick species found on white-tailed deer east of the Rockies um, in high numbers in some cases, really high numbers. Um, so we're assessing the ability of this tick species to harbor uh, CWD prions by taking a blood meal. Um, so the membrane-feeding assays essentially showed that, yes, if you give them a blood meal that has CWD prions in it, um, if they eat that blood meal, not surprisingly, it will be inside of them. It's in their midgut, presumably. Um, and one of the things that I was excited to see from that part of the study is that while they're while ticks are feeding, they excrete um, some of the blood meal, um, and they ex they excrete uh, fluids from their midgut to try and concentrate that blood meal, but they can also excrete some of the blood. And the prions are also in the, the excrement of the ticks. So that was very interesting. Um, so we had, you know, our answer to that question, yeah, they're capable of taking up um, prions from blood meal. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we are coming up on time, but yeah, can you give us the condensed version of what that what that means for how we understand um, CWD and deer behavior. Sure. Yeah. So we need to do more research here to really understand what the implications of this study um, are in in wild deer. We don't know if they are. We don't know one hundred percent if they are eating ticks. There's um, you know observational evidence that they do from naturalists. Um, but we don't know how much or how many they might be eating. So that kind of needs to be assessed. And then the actual transmission potential, you know, because our, our publication just gave an estimation um, of the, uh, the infectivity that ticks found feeding on CWD positive deer um, may contain. Those were estimated values that were done, you know, with a lot of mathematical uh, inference. And so um, two things need to happen. We need to assess if ticks are being eaten by deer, and if so, how frequently or how to what intensity. And then we also need to assess the actual infectivity of uh, ticks that have been taking blood meal from CWD-positive deer by doing some kind of oral transmission study um, with a, a relevant uh, and susceptible animal. Great. And it's, um, is there a way that folks can uh, look in, uh, keep tabs on what kind of research um, you and your group are working on? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, we, we have a lab, a lab website. Um, it's the Turner Lab and uh, at UW-Madison. We're part of the Wisconsin Wildlife Research Cooperative. And um, Dr. Wendy Turner is a USGS research scientist, so she also has, um, you know, her information up on the USGS uh, Wildlife Cooperative website. And then, of course, I can be contacted by anyone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Which I, I, I have been. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I can put your contact information in the in the show notes at that. Uh, I don't know 
Okay, but we don't have to do that. I don't. I don't know what the best how the how best to handle that. Like email, I could answer emails if people have questions, but I'm I'm happy to do that. Okay, yeah. Um, I'll cut that part out of the audio, <laughs> but uh, that's not weird. Um, but yeah. Well, it sounds like there's some really exciting new developments in this line of research. Um, really excited to see what you find. How many ticks you have to eat? <laughs> How many ticks does a deer have to eat to get CWD? <laughs> French cut. Um, no, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Perpetual Notion Machine. Um, this is really interesting. Uh, appreciate you sharing the research with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.